This is the Manga Mavericks Podcast from AllComic.com, episode 142. We are a podcast not only dedicated to talking about manga as a medium, but as an industry. I'm Colton. And I'm Lom Ramiyasa, and welcome to the final episode of LGB Thanksgiving, where we are going to round up with a big podcast, a podcast on a series that spans a decade and truly represents the evolution of LGBTQ mangas throughout the 2010s, and that series is Kaze-san. Pretty much literally beginning in 2010 and continuing onwards into the 2020s, Kaze-san is a beautifully delightful story about two girls falling in love and working through relationships through communication that lasts not only through their high school days, but into their college years. They take that leap into adulthood together, and it's a really incredible series, and we were delighted to have some really special guests on to talk about it. We had returning guest Erica Friedman, founder of Okazu, and Yori Scholar Extraordinaire, and we have the host of the Tomo Chaco podcast, the podcast devoted to covering Yuri manga, Kit and Sarah. And it was a delightful conversation with all three of these wonderful people as we not only talk about Kaze-san, this podcast should be called Kaze-san and Tangents because <laughs> we go off on many. So if you want to hear us talk about how public transit differs between the East Coast and in Japan and how Japan is so much better than <laughs> the public transit in NYC in particular. And if you want to hear us talk about our thoughts on dubs versus subs and how dubs are so much better now. And thoughts on all sorts of wild and random fun things. But it is mostly focused on Kaze-san. We do talk about the series, the manga specifically. We dive into some thoughts on the OVA. But it was a really fun conversation. Really lively. And I think you guys are really going to enjoy it. Mm -hmm, Yeah, for sure. I thought it was a fun conversation too. And... I really enjoyed Kase-san, so I really hope that you guys uh, enjoy this conversation. And uh, you know, speaking for Lum here, we 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 hope we hope you guys really enjoyed this uh, this theme month that Lum put together. I've been kind of listening to the past few podcasts, and I've really enjoyed them. So there you go. Hmm. But. LGBTQ month is now entering its winter, so let's enjoy our last look at the beautiful flowers of queer manga by heading into our Kazesan discussion. Kaze-san, like most love stories, is a story of communication, so we're here to communicate our love for the series in celebration of its 10th anniversary, with a podcast. 
and with some very special guests. We have returning to the show, Erica Friedman, Hello. founder of La Casa and Yuricon. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you. And we also have first-time guests, Kit and Sarah from the Tomo Chaco podcast, a Yuri-focused podcast. <laughs> Hello. Hello, and thank you so much for having us. Thank you guys for coming on. I wanted to have like a really special collection of guests to talk about this series, because this is definitely one of the bigger Yuri titles of the 2010s. It's a series that spans the 2010s and is still ongoing. And it's really special. But yeah, Kaze-san is a series by Hiromi Takashima that began in Pure Yuri Anthology Hirai magazine pretty early on in that magazine's run, in like the second issue of it back in 2010. And originally it was just like a series of one-shots. It was literally just planned as one-shot and then Takashima just get going with it with like more installments and it ran for about three volumes for the stories by the time the magazine ceased publication in 2014. But that wasn't the end of Kazasan, because then Takashima said they took it online and began selling it online and then publishing it in like uh, Flash Wings, uh, an online site run by the same publisher, Shinsokan. And so it ran about a few more years with two more volumes worth of stories on there. And then in April of 2017, it got a Basically, sequels to the series slash continuation, Kazasan and Yamada, and has been running ever since in Wings Magazine. So, it's a series that has really kind of. It's a story of struggle with the series, I suppose. Like a story of survival. Like, it just kept going, like, even past the cancellation of its magazine, finding new homes and continuing to tell this wonderful story about these two girls in love. And, yeah, the basic premise of Kazasan is it follows. Yamada, who is a member of the Greenery Public School, she's kind of a quiet, introverted girl. She really only has one close friend, and her relationship with Kaze, who she's, after about a half a year in junior high of like getting to know each other, they start dating in their senior year. And Kaze is a very sporty, outgoing, assertive girl. So they're kind of like an opposite personalities, but like they form real connection and they just have a really charming, wonderful relationship. And they go through a lot of, you know, very realistic kind of problems relationships in terms of like insecurities and jealousies and then worries about the future. And of course, as a high school set story, worrying about can this relationship continue outside of high school into college and into their adult years. So I really like how the story develops in that respect as well. I want to ask you guys, like, what were your first experiences with Kazasan and what really spoke to you and stood out to you about the series? Erica? Um, well, I was reading pure Yuri anthology Harari when it was coming out, uh, and I read the original initial uh, episodes, and I thought it was very sweet. Um, pure Yuri anthology Harari was a very odd little magazine. Because the whole concept of puriuri was, I thought, very <laughs> performative. Uh, you know, back in the day when I was publishing Yuri, I called our books 100% Yuri, which is to say that they were Yuri manga by lesbians for lesbians. Um, but puriuri seemed much more like this idea, this fan fantasy ideal of what Yuri ought to be, filtered mostly, I think, by the publisher. 
really. Um, yeah. Because if you actually read the magazine itself, which of which I have all of the volumes here, if you read the actual magazine, you'd see that some of the stories are really sweet and cute and sort of harmless, and then there'd be like porn. <laughs> like, uh, which which is this? And this is actually exactly the the problem with the early two thousand tens and this idea of Yuri and and how many people come up to me and say, "Oh, I, I love Yuri because it's so pure," and I'd be like, "Except for the porn that you read." I'd be like, you know. But anyway, so Pure Yuri Anthology was a really weird magazine, and I really liked it, but I felt it was more of a, a great idea than a, a really well executed thing. The thing it did was it picked up a lot of artists that had previously worked for Kamakuri Hime and for one reason or another had left them. It also found other really well-known Yuri mangaka and found a home for them. I'd never heard of Takashi Mihiromi-sensei, and this was new and exciting. And, you know, yeah, it's a school story and blah, blah, blah. It was very sweet and very cute. Um, sometime around the second volume, it did something. It just changed. It became a little realer. It wasn't like a huge shift. It wasn't like we suddenly jumped into the world. It was like this teeny little shift into, you know, this is actually kind of real. And I started to really like it. And I think the third volume was the first one that became my manga of the year, my Yuri manga of the year on Okazu. And it just, it just somehow became more than it initially had been. And I started to actually care about Yamada and Kasa as a couple. And, uh, yeah, the magazine went out of print, and, and Takashima Sensei just didn't end the series, and I thought that was really interesting. And then I met her uh, last year in, at TCAF, and I have to say I'm not surprised now. She's a <laughs> tremendous person. She's really f- not focused. She's not weird or intense. She has no self-esteem issues. She's just really very grounded and very solid and... One of the questions we got at the interview there at TCAF was, you know, how do you work knowing that, you know, you're never good enough? And how do you, how do you make sure that you just have the energy to keep going? And she stared at the kid and went like, what? <laughs> and she said something I'll never forget. Not because I've never heard it before, because I've never heard it before from a manga. <laughs> she said, they invited me. I had every right to be in that room. Wow. And wow. I went, that's awesome. You are the only mangaka of any kind I have ever heard say that out loud. And maybe they make it, maybe others meant it, maybe others feel it, but I've never heard anybody look at the audience and go, did you make something? Then you made it. Did you write something? Then you wrote it. It's worthy. It's fine. You're fine. Do your work. That's awesome. And that was after it had been licensed and published here. And I just felt like, is there anyone else I know who deserves it this much? Because she just, she's like, yes, yes, I deserve this. And I was like, yes, yes, you do. That's great to hear. I really appreciate that she's so confident in herself. And I think that show is in like the kind of back of the volume, you know, little author gag comics where she's like, kind of recounting like her experiences like drawing writing series i definitely got a sense of like chill confidence yeah this works let's go with this kind of vibe from her the the little author comics in the back i'm sitting here i've got all my volumes uh on my table here and just they're always such a treat Mm -hmm. (laughs) just like the way that she talks about writing this manga and developing the characters it's it's one of the best parts of these to read and the whole series is just a delight. 
uh, <laughs> to to address your your original question of kind of like how did we find this series sarah do you remember like what kind of led us to go oh hey we should do this one or was it just me on another tangent you recommended it to me okay i had never read it before we covered it on the show okay because i i remember when i when i got really into yuri it was pretty much in america just girlfriends and strawberry panic (laughs) at least as far as like what you could find at a barnes and noble which was where i went to access books right Mm -hmm. and i am a person and sarah's gonna laugh at this i don't like angst (laughs) it's true she does i just I just don't like I have very little patience for it. I don't know why I I feel like it's done well in some series. But a lot of times it's just like in girlfriends, it just goes on for far too long and it loses me. And the thing that really grabbed me about Kasai-san was that they only did the sort of like, will they won't they for one volume. And then the rest of it is just like these two adorable, useless lesbians trying to figure out how their relationship works. And that is like so completely my whole deal. (laughs) (laughs) So I at the end of volume one, I was just like sold. I was like, okay, this is a this is the Yuri series that I'm going to recommend to everyone who's getting into Yuri for the rest of my life. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And they're not even really all that useless. They're just young. Yeah. You know, I mean, the, the half of the story <laughs> is about how Yamato finds herself. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, they both deal with issues of, like, insecurity, like, about their relationship, because they care about each other so much, so what they are afraid of losing each other, and so that's where these ideas of, like, jealousy about, like, not feeling, like, good enough for their partner come in. And they kind of have to grow to communicate those feelings to each other and let each other know how they feel. So that their relationship can just grow stronger and they kind of know what's up with each other. I think that's what made the series really stand out to me when we were reading it for the podcast. I was like, you know, oh, it's a school year, you know, whatever. And then I started reading (laughs) it and I was like, oh, this is actually really about their relationship in a way that a lot of other school year doesn't cover. Like, it's about their relationship growing and changing and how they communicate with each other and how they... communication was really the thing that changed, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And how how they learn to be, you know, how they they become grown-up people together, basically. Yes, yes, exactly. (laughs) So often when you read a high school eerie story, there's this assumption, like girlfriends, and girlfriends, there's a lot of good things in girlfriends, there's a lot of bad things there. One of the things I thought was the very weakest piece was the very end, where Mari says, one day we'll have to deal with the real world. Yeah. But not right now. And that's it. Mm-hmm. Boom. End of story. I was like, <sighs> okay. So this one doesn't wait till one day. It doesn't wait till someday. It doesn't wait or put the real world out there somewhere where it's a fantasy space. Mm-hmm. Instead, it does the other thing and says... This is who we are. This is what we are. And now we're lucky in that the scenario sets up Yamada's one friend. Mikawachi. Yeah, Mikawachi is uh, is crazy, but she's kind of an asshole at the beginning. But then when she realizes (laughs) it's serious, she stops that. Yeah. Mm Because she is really genuinely a good friend. Something we don't often see. 
Yeah. Usually we see it the other way around where they're a good friend until you're, you know, you're gay and then they're like, oh, what the hell? That's <laughs> not here. It's a totally different thing. It's like Mikawashi is like, ha ha ha. Oh, I'm shutting my face now. <laughs> and yeah. I'm 100% there and I'm supporting you. That's a huge thing for this to say you could be a good friend by being supportive instead of being an asshole. Like, right. How yeah. about you try that? You know, that sort of thing really shifts it where it's like all the lessons are very small and very real, but powerful as a result because we don't see them in too many other places. Yeah. I really appreciate Mikawachi as like a friend character. <laughs> a lot of Yamada's insecurities about her relationship because they do come from her and like some of the ideas that she puts in Yamada's head in terms of, oh, Kaze has so many girlfriends. She's so <laughs> right. experienced. And that's something <laughs> Yamada's constantly worried about. It's like, oh, does Kaze have exes? Like, oh, I'm not as experienced as Kaze right. in relationships. And Mikawashi is also like, well, you're pretty average. <laughs> right? You know, you don't really have a lot to look forward to. You can't, re- are you really thinking about going to Tokyo? And then when Yamada goes, yes, I am, Mikawashi's like, oh, rock on. <laughs> like, she yeah. does the shift that you want her and need her to do. And then when she goes to college, too, in Tokyo, and the three of them are there, but for totally, completely different reasons. <laughs> like, none of them are there for the same reason. And yes, Yamada and Kasasan are there so that they can kind of be together. But Yamada, as a result of making that decision, has found a way out place for herself. Yeah. So it's not just, I'm, I'm doing this because of you. I'm doing this because of me, and it helps me be with you is a totally different story. Yeah. And it's something yeah. that we so very rarely see in Yuri is mm-hmm. the characters existing outside of the relationship. Yes, exactly. And I feel like Kase-san in it's just such a very emotionally honest series and it really treats its characters with care and realism in that like hey i am really passionate about horticulture how can i use my personal passion and pursue that while also you know this relationship is important to me and i want to try to maintain it and when have we ever seen that in another year right (laughs) well and i love well you know we do have some things like that and a lot of them are older that you probably haven't ever seen but it's a little bit of a, a different thing because what we see them doing is starting to tendril out into the real world. Like, we don't really see their families a lot. We don't see their other friends. And obviously, Imada doesn't, but Kasasan doesn't. As we start to get them, then we have to deal with those relationships impinging on the main relationship. And, like, we see the old senpai who turns out to be an asshole because she thinks it's funny. Like, not because she's an actually an asshole, but because she just likes to pull people's strings. Yeah, and so, you know, we do get some of these things sort of impinging on the relationship. And Kasasan's jealousy, obviously, is a very real issue that's repeated over time. But we don't really yet have sort of the real world until just in the last few chapters, you know, with Yamada having a job and Kase having her, her sports. And it's like now we're starting to see what this relationship is going to do under pressure. Yeah, I th- I think that's what I really love about the switch to the college setting in particular. It's like, they're living in the city now, now that they're adults, they have to be self-sufficient, get their own jobs, and they, even though they're both in the same city, like, they live far away from each other. It's like a 50-minute train ride to each of each other's, like, 
colleges. Yeah. And so they have to put in a lot of work to like coordinate and find time to meet up. And sometimes, you know, they go long stretches of time without seeing each other, but they still have to try and maintain keeping contact. So I really like that direction. I mean, you don't often see in a lot of Fury stories with this kind of type A, you know, school setting story go on beyond the high school years into the characters as adults and seeing like how they continue to maintain that relationship. So that is like, I think what's really special about the direction the series has gone in. And I really enjoyed like the last one and like this new direction of Kazusan and Yamada in particular. But yeah, I also really like about the relationship between Kazusan and Yamada is that they encourage each other to grow and try new things. I mean, specifically with Yamada, like, it's when Kaze kind of questions her, why have you chosen to go to, like, this college with this literature program or whatever, you know, this local college that makes him think, why am I, like, going here? Like, why literature college? And then really makes her think to herself, like, no, I want to be with Kaze-san, but I also want to do what I love to do, which is taking care of plants and greenery and pursue horticulture. So you're saying you're saying that Kase really planted that idea in her head? Uh, and she definitely sowed the seed. But you know what? You know what, the, what? I think is really fun about that is when she does when Yamada does get to college. Well, there's two things actually. First of all, I want to say that the volume being called Kasasan and Yamada changes everything. Right? Mm-hmm. It's always mm-hmm. been Yamada watching Kasasan. Kasasan in this, Kasasan in that. And in this one, it's finally the two of them. Mm. They're like, we're seeing each other equally for the first time. So that was huge. But that was that was one thing. And the other thing that when, when Yamada finally goes and gets a job at the uh, Greenery Center, thank you, Kawachi, the green, you know, the, the Greenery Center, people were like, wow, you're at that college. Oh, my God. Like, you know, you're purebred. <laughs> like, they're so excited. <laughs> they're so absolutely beyond, them, beyond themselves with somebody who's, you know, uh, uh, going to be a specialist in this mm-hmm. field. And then, of course, then Yamada makes a friend. And that's yeah. also huge. And we, yes, there's going to be jealousy, but it turns out, obviously, ultimately, that that's a bit of a miscommunication. What is interesting is that she has a friend who is so very much her peer in this new Yamada-ness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I really appreciated that she made a friend all on her own with Hana, and then mm-hmm. like she really wanted to put in the work, like spend time with her, and yeah, they have this instant connection. But like because this is like her first friend she made on her own, she like wanted to make sure that she continued to build that friendship like on her own, like by going to that uh, garden party or whatever. And it's like, yeah, I, I like that Yamada starts to be a little more assertive and independently, like not just with the prodding of Kaze or Mikawachi with the, you know, Kaze-san Yamada volumes. Well, and the fact that we actually get to see that in the manga, like, how often do we really get that kind of thing where one of the main pair gets to create their own separate relationship apart from the other one? Yeah. And it's really true. Like, Kaze and Yamada, like, they have obviously their close relationship and their own friend circle as a couple but like they independently have their own lives going on Katsu especially like in high school 
you know, as part of the track team. Like, she had a big circle of friends. She was always doing activities. And so, like, she was all off doing her own thing. And that's true with Yamada as well. Like, she was, you know, doing the greenery club and taking care of the plants around the campus. And she only had really Mikawachi as her one friend, but she hung out independently with her and stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that continues as they go into college and in their relationship. It's like they each have their own stuff going on, but that's okay. Like, they can grow individually as people and they grow together as a couple. Exactly. And I love, especially, like, as the series evolves from the the original five books into Kase-san and Yamada, how whenever you shift to a new setting when you leave, like, the original... Because a lot of times in manga, the setting is as much a character as the characters are, right? Mm -hmm. It forms and shapes and kind of, like, makes some decisions for the story, depending on where you set it. And if you change that setting, it can sometimes feel a little bit shoehorned in a way. Like, another manga that I really, really like that could be considered Yuri-adjacent is uh, School Live. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a point in that series where the setting completely shifts. They literally like leave the school that had been the setting of the first, I want to say four or five volumes for a completely new area. And they introduce this new cast of characters. And some of them feel like really organic and well-placed in the world. And some of them kind of feel like they're there to just fill a specific role. Right. And one of the things that I really appreciate that Takashima Sensei does so well is that Hana and Fukami feel like just real people that would exist in this fiction. Yeah, they feel like a natural outgrowth of where the story is going. Exactly. And I just, I really appreciate the way that their interactions with Kase and Yamada both help them, like, grow and change as people and also uh, just provide their own, like, levity as well. Yeah. Honestly, I really appreciate the friend circle in supporting cast in the series. There aren't a ton of characters, but I feel like one thing that I really appreciate is that it feels like all the characters have like their own lives going on. And it's not like these side characters, their entire lives revolve around the main characters. Like in a lot of series, I feel like, what does this character do outside of hang out with this protagonist character? It feels like your entire life revolves around interacting with them. Mm-hmm. And in this series, I feel like everyone is independent and their lives just cross together. Like, time and again but like they have their own things to do like i really like hana is like you know she's comes from like a family that runs like a flower shop and stuff like she is as yamada calls like a true royalty or whatever of the flower (laughs) shop (laughs) horticulture world but like she when mikawaji asked her like hey do you want to also come work at this flower shop she's like no thanks i've had enough of Oh, greenery and flowers. <laughs> if I wanted to get a job, I'd go work at a Starbucks. <laughs> yeah, I, I appreciate how, you know, nobody at one time is like, where's Kase? I don't know where Kase is. I wonder what she's doing right now. Like, yeah, everybody, everybody has their own lives. That's, that's, that's a nice touch. 
that is actually really important. And Nikawachi too also comes back when they all sit down to watch flowers together. And she's like, yeah, I've got like three jobs and I'm doing this. And they're like, oh, we forgot to ask, didn't we? <laughs> we were so busy building our own lives. But that's very normal for friends. Oh, absolutely. Facebook has changed that. Obviously, the line changes that. That sort of thing is different nowadays. You don't need to check in all the time with people to see how they're doing because, of course, you just wake up in the morning and there, what they're doing is right there in your face. But back before we had Facebook, this is what we did. We got together and talked to our friends about things. (laughs) So what are you up to? (laughs) Now we just do it over Zoom. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think I appreciate it. that's why they, in Kazanya, they meet up, like, time and again, like, at this cafe or whatever next to the train station, you know, just to chat up with each other because they haven't seen each other in so long. They're each so busy with their own things. Sure. But yeah, like, again, I think that the series is really about, like, the struggles of maintaining relationships with people, not just in a romantic context, but, like, friendships. And I think that it explores that and really nice ways that you don't often see because so often it's like friendships or relationships like people in your life are like kind of taken for granted you don't really see a lot of monk explore like putting in the effort to like communicate with people Mm -hmm. and keeping contact with people and one of the things that i i want to highlight with this series another another thing that is just adds to how charming it is to read is that for how realistic and honest it is in terms of how it portrays the relationships and the characters the art style is extremely cartoony and i love it it's so good (laughs) absolutely and it's it plays with like proportions and physics and things in just a very that old classic Mm -hmm. sc thing you know, where you yeah, have the bottom yeah. with a little the little leaf over her head and Yeah. Uh, but if you look at if you look at Takashima Sensei's Twitter feed, you can see her doing a lot of really uh, goofy stuff, but also some really beautiful work too, where she's really sort of highlighting one of the things that I personally really like is if you watch the way her art is changing, they are being drawn older now and there's no doubt about it. You can really genuinely see. That they yeah. look older. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely in Kaze Yamada, when uh, Kaze is wearing that suit, like she definitely looks, whoa, yeah, she's looked way older. <laughs> 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 well, and even just like comparing the covers of Morning Glories and Kaze San and Yamada, you can see how just the way that they dress and carry themselves is, is far more. It gives off a far more mature vibe than them, uh, you know, doing the very kawaii jumping pose yes. <laughs> on the cover of Morning Glories. Yeah. yeah, I mean, with their body language in particular, now that Yamada is more confident, like we definitely see in Kasasan uh, and Yamada, like she is not as much of a wilting flower kind kind of she's not as like nervous around people so she carries herself like more upright i mean she's still nervous but she's working through it which is what i really think is the most charming piece of her is that Mm -hmm. she comes to the big city from this teeny little provincial town and she's terrified i don't know if you you know it's one of the things i've said for years traveling i'm used to new york city i grew up here in new jersey right outside new york city my family went into the city all the time it never terrified me But if you come from somewhere where the biggest city is like 10,000 people, something like Tokyo, 
or New York City is absolutely gobsmackingly terrifying. It's just so much. And uh, I can understand if you came out from, you know, a fairly low suburban, mostly rural area, it would be really, really difficult to come into the city with kind of no mental prep. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and one of the things that kind of blew my mind was when they talked about how it's a 50 minute train ride. To, mm-hmm. to go from one college to another in the same city. Like, yeah. the Pacific Northwest, we have cities, but I wouldn't consider Seattle a big city yeah, the way really, that, like, yeah. New York and a lot of the East Coast cities are. So that just completely, like, blew me out of my chair. I was like, wait, what? Things like that exist? <laughs> well, I, I got flashbacks to my time in New York and having to travel to a place like 50 minutes away in the same city. And it's like 12 12 miles. And that's the thing about New York City that's crazy. I live Mm -hmm. 33 miles from Midtown. It takes me an hour and a half (laughs) to get there. Yeah. So in uh, Tokyo, the Yamanote, which is the line that goes around, you know, the circle line, is almost exactly an hour. So if I was getting, if I was... I'm just making stuff up, but if I I stay out in Ikebukuro, and if I need to get to, say, Tokyo Station, it takes me roughly half an hour just to get to the other side of the city. Mm-hmm. And so if one person's college is a little, like, another train line out, or a couple of stops out, and then you go to another spot, it could easily be a 50-minute ride. And like every other city, you kind of have to come into a hub and then move, go over and then go out. So... Uh, you know, I, I could totally see that being the case. And then not actually being all that physically far from each other, but still taking 50 minutes to get there. It makes perfect sense for me out here in the, the, the New York, New Jersey metro area. <laughs> you know, you, you say that and now I just got flashbacks to when I was a, a small college student having to ride the bus from the university district in Seattle to West Seattle, which when I had a car was like a 10 minute drive. But now that I think about it, yeah, I did do an hour and a half bus ride each way for that job (laughs) for two years. (laughs) Even, even in the relatively small city that we live in, it takes an hour to get from where I live on the South side to say the community college on the North side of town by bus. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I think that's really Beauty normal in any city. <laughs> the only difference in Tokyo, and it's really a huge difference and a difference that I can't I can't express how amazing it is, is that they have lines that connect to other lines where like in New Jersey, we have lines through New Jersey, but they only connect to Newark and New York. Yeah. So if I'm here mm-hmm. in Morristown to get to New Brunswick, which is a half an hour car ride, it takes me three hours to get there by train because I have to go into Newark, switch stations in Newark, which when I was doing it, didn't have a connector. So I had to either take a cab or a bus or walk, which ultimately is what I did, then take a train line down to New Brunswick. It took me three hours in the morning because we didn't have a car. So it was, Mm. if there had been a train line from my city to the other city, it would have been a half an hour ride, and that's what they have in Tokyo. You just don't have that. Who knew that a conversation about uh, a wonderful manga would lead to talking about commutes? <laughs> <laughs> this is great radio. That's, that's the number one thing that blows your head open when you go to Tokyo, is once you realize that the train lines make everything accessible, and I mean accessible not in the sense of if you have accessibility issues, but I mean 
if you're just a, a, a person without accessibility issues, everything becomes accessible. Yes, you might be an hour out, but it's an hour that you get out and then it's a walk and you're there. You don't have to car, bus, train, taxi, and then walk. You know, it's, it's everything is, is pretty much accessible. Yeah. So we should probably talk about the weather next. <laughs> Man, I, I'm glad I never had to practice through a typhoon like Kaze did and her track team. <laughs> it doesn't seem like a very good idea. In general, I'm glad I never had to be uh, in the proximity of a typhoon in general. Or there have been hurricanes, but uh, <laughs> I haven't had to run against the wind in the same I've way. I've done that, actually. <laughs> One, one oh. year we were in Tokyo and we were we were there while a typhoon was happening. It was really fascinating because we'd go into a store and the wind would hit and the rain would hit and then it would stop and we'd walk out and it was bright and sunny. If you look at the sky, you can literally see like the spirals of the arms of the clouds. And we kept <laughs> being outside in between the clouds. So it was the weirdest thing. So we would we only got actually got caught really badly once on the way back from the Rohoji. Uh, but it was really fun because we'd be like, everything would pound on the windows while we shopped, and we'd walk out and it'd be sunny. And then it would pound while we were inside the next door. It was crazy. So here's one thing we haven't talked about. We haven't talked about the OVA. Uh, right. Oh, the OVA. Yeah, the OVA. Yes. Yeah, sure. Let's yeah. talk about that. Definitely. I mean, <laughs> to be to be totally clear, I haven't seen it. So oh, that's why I haven't <laughs> talked about it. <laughs> I haven't seen it either, but I know it exists. Yeah. Is there any way to watch that, actually? That's on High it's Dive. It's on High Dive. Both subbed and yeah. dubbed. Okay, see, I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay. So everything Sentai licenses is on High Dive now. Yeah. That's yeah. Their That's very thing. nice. But yeah. I don't have High Dive. I mean, you can just use my Verve account. We'll talk about yeah. it later. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you can access it from Verve. You can also yeah. just get, like, a 30-day uh, free trial yeah Sarah, i also own it on blu-ray yeah, and I, I own it <laughs> okay but you have to bring it to me then <laughs> yeah well, i have to bring you the box later so i'll, I'll just deliver it to you today <laughs> okay <laughs> the japanese blu-ray came out at the most ridiculously low price i've ever seen a japanese blu-ray come so i bought it on amazon japan for $55 for the Blu-ray, plus $5 shipping from Japan, that has never, ever, ever been a thing I have ever seen. $5 shipping? At the time, I spent $60 to get it over here. And then wow. Sentai picked it up, and they put it on Blu-ray, and it's relatively reasonable price. I think it's like $29. Yeah. Yeah. Something like yeah, that. Yeah, it's not, it's not hideous for Blu-ray, and I'm going to tell you, it's the best $30 you've ever spent. Yeah, it's, it's beautifully, beautiful. magnificently animated. Oh, man, I might have yeah. to watch that. Uh, and that, that's another thing that yeah. I've never seen done. And this might just be my, my lack of experience with, like, how anime gets made. Um, but they did, like, a little music video <laughs> for Kase-san before, as, like, a proof of concept yes, they before yeah. they made oh, the whole yeah. thing, right? Yeah, they've done that. And the producers were like, if this gets 100,000 views, maybe we'll do something more with this. And then it did. Yeah. And they did. And, yeah. The OVA came out and it was quite successful in its theatrical run in Japan. It ran for about two and a half months. It was ridiculously successful for a theatrical run. Generally, anime movies come out for a week. <laughs> and they come out, they do what they call a road show, which is yeah. that it hits all the theaters for 
whatever week. And they call it a roadshow because not every theater hits it gets it for the same week. So it starts in, say, Tokyo and then goes to Osaka. And then you get it further and further out into the provinces. Sorry, the rest of Japan, I'm calling you the provinces. <laughs> and so basically it takes like a month or so. But every theater gets it for a week. Mm. And that's mm. it. This lingered in actual theaters by itself. It was going two, three, four, or five weeks. And then it was also moving out into other ones where sometimes there were other smaller ones where it was only going for a week. But you had this incredibly long two and a half month period where you could find Casas on somewhere running. And they had reboot shows. So they were selling second sets of, of art tickets and third wow. sets. And each showing got unique tickets and unique goods so that they could sell tickets for these further shows to people who are absurd collectors like myself. <laughs> yeah, like, I would have gone to that for sure. Right? Absolutely. And a lot of these were being paired with Liz and the Bluebird, which is itself a brilliant movie. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh my gosh. Yes. So you'd have, literally, you could have two absolutely breathtakingly, beautifully animated gorgeous uh stories on top of each other that that just fit really well together and you could just have all these goods and and stuff so that was it was sort of a something i just never seen before yeah a great double feature i mean those stories complement each other really Mm -hmm. well yeah Yeah. the the only complaint that i had about it was that it wasn't longer (laughs) (laughs) how long yeah it's only an hour long it adapts the second and third volume yeah it's basically bento and shortcake right yeah Yeah. it starts about halfway through the second volume too so we get past the initial stages of yamato Mm -hmm. really being unsure about what they are and who they are if they're together so it starts there and then goes forward and the, yeah. the producer said multiple times in various interviews that they really wanted to talk a sto- about a story about communication and how a relationship develops. And I think that really yeah. works beautifully. And it makes a great intro to Yuri. So if I ever have something that I would need people to see, say, you know, here's the Yuri story right now, because it is a story A, but it's not the girl meets girl part. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like what happens out. It's the actual developing of the relationship yeah. part. And they chose well with the story. So like they started off with them having just gone together. They're like texting each other, like, hey, what do you want to do now? And while well, they're in their bedrooms and stuff, and then of course the Okinawa trip, the part later where they're both like in Kaze's bedroom and they almost have sex but I don't love that scene though. because my, her mom calls oh the, the, that scene the animated Kaze sniffing up Yamada's arm really well <laughs> people, people like, are fanning themselves at the anime NYC premiere yeah. like I guess people were like literally <laughs> I was looking the whole movie watching the audience right so I'm sitting way in the back and there was a young man sitting in front of me and he felt every moment of that movie so hard. <laughs> it was so adorable. It was so adorable. I just wanted to reach out and tap him like at one point when they were having a little problem. I wanted to reach out and go, it's okay, it's okay. <laughs> it's going to be okay, buddy. <laughs> it was just so delightful yeah. sitting in that audience. Everybody was feeling it so much. Yeah. That was my first experience with Kazasan is watching the uh, screening at Anime NYC that year. It's so beautiful. It was really, really fun. Like I did not really know anything about it except for the reputation of it being a really great st- series before going in. I was 
completely enthralled with the OVA because of how gorgeous the colors were, how beautifully animated was. And that scene in particular, just kind of the tension, but also the exploration of like sexuality in that scene and like kind of asking those questions of like consent, towing the line of like, hey, what are we comfortable with doing? Like, I thought that was really, really well done. And, you know, my my fiance is an avid reader. You know, she works at a library, but she has difficulty with anything graphic novel or manga related just because she has sort of a like issue processing images and text at the same time. Mm -hmm. And so it's always like sad for me when I get like really, really into a Yuri series and I'm like, you got to read this. It's so good. And uh, she just has that accessibility issue so uh, like oh, we watched the ova and she was like i love that <laughs> well there's always like, going to be yes, people good. for whom that's an easier way to absorb art i'm yeah. less visu- mm-hmm. i'm less visual than i saw i actually read manga by reading the words first and then i look at the pictures and i don't Same, realize yeah. i do it so people will say did you notice this i'm like no <laughs> like, <laughs> not at all and i watch things watch quote unquote watch things on tv on the screen where i'm doing something else all the time so i'm very bad at actually looking at visual details but that was so beautiful that i actually watched it and then watched it again to watch what i missed hmm. see i'm i'm mm-hmm. i'm really bad at passively watching things like if i if i'm going to watch something like I can't help but like want to make time to actually watch a thing because I I can't do like what other people do and like, you know, like make art while watching anime or like exercise while watching it. Like I got to be sitting down and paying attention. So I, I I applaud anybody who can like, you know, multitask watching stuff because I just can't do it. For me, it depends on the show or the story. Like if it's, if it's like I watch a lot of anime while I exercise, but it's often like these, you know, shonen anime <laughs> that uh, I'm usually watching dubbed, Perfect. and it's like it's just stuff I can like. Oh, when the opening team plays, it pumps me up, it keeps me going, and I don't really have to pay that much attention because yeah, oftentimes yeah, I know what's gonna. I know these. Yeah, beats. you're just like oh oh, they're screaming. Okay, they're screaming. That's cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah, for for me the the thing. For me, it's entirely just if it's sub or dub. Like, if I'm watching something dubbed, I can do other things in the background. If it's sub, I have to, like, be very enraptured and paying attention. And that's the whole reason I haven't gotten into Kaguya-sama yet. Uh, (laughs) I agree. Actually, hasn't the dub of Kaguya-sama started up? Yeah, but it's on Funimation, and oh, I haven't, I haven't okay. renewed my Funimation yeah. subscription. <laughs> but I agree with that. Like, I find it easier to multitask with dubbed or English language programs. And I actually don't, and that's so funny, because I, mm. I thought it would be, right? Because, of course, I can put it on. I could do other things, like, in another room if it's running. But if I want to pay attention, it, there's no difference for me. And I'm just really lucky, because I was sort of trained really young to read ridiculously quickly so watching a sub is a matter of just glancing up seeing the words and then looking away again and i could do whatever in the other two seconds that, it, <laughs> that sentence takes so so i'm really <laughs> yeah. lucky about that i was just it's just a lot of early training when i was in school they had a whole group of us where they basically ran tons of tests to make us absurdly fast readers so there's like mm. six other kids out there like me with these ridiculous reading speeds. So so sub isn't really any harder for me. And dub, I actually have to pay attention to also for many years. And this is not true now. But for years, dubs were so horrible 
<laughs> where they oh, just yeah. consistently murdered names and nouns and places and basically whole scripts that it was impossible for me to enjoy them. Unless I really didn't care about the story. Like years and years ago, I was watching Naruto on Cartoon Network. And I don't like, <laughs> I have no interest in Naruto. And I literally, it was just an episode that was just on. And I thought, hey, this isn't bad because I don't care. Like, it doesn't matter to me oh, what God, their names right? are or who they are or what was going on or what the tack names are or whatever. And I thought, okay, you know what? Let me go vacuum now. <laughs> yeah, okay. So that's one thing I want to say. The dub of Kasei-san is really good. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. They really did a good job. Dubs are totally different now. They actually oh, yeah. care. Yeah. They're not as bad as everybody on the internet says they are. No, but even <laughs> yeah. so, I mean... I feel like everybody on the internet who argues with subs versus dubs hasn't watched a dub in the last decade. That's the story. Yeah. I mean, that's probably yeah. true, true yeah. because I <laughs> probably haven't watched a dub in the last decade. Although I don't go on the internet and argue about it. <laughs> <laughs> you just argue about it with me. I don't argue about <laughs> it with you. I have never argued about it. <laughs> when I do a review now, I take a moment, and if it's a longer series, I always watch at least one episode dubbed. I prefer subs. That's just me. Yeah, I, I prefer to watch it. I like the voices of the Japanese artists. It's fine. I don't have. I don't feel anything about it. But I gotta tell you, when I watch dubs these days, I'm so impressed. The quality is so so much better. It's so excellent. It's actually almost at the same level as the Japanese subs. Where where mm. you've got the voice, the Japanese voice acting, I should say, where the voice actors really are working hard. The only thing we still don't do, and I think it's the difference, it's that the gap between the Japanese and the American uh, voices is that they're all in one room together acting off of each other, and we still have people in a sound booth. And yeah. they're much, much better than they used to be in a, in a tremendous way. They get the names right, they get the places right, the scripts are written better, I think the acting is a lot better. But the emotional state is still never quite perfect because they don't have some real person to play off of. Yeah. Yeah. That's the only difference. And it's so much better. I, I would never, ever argue with dubs or subs ever. But now I think if you're not watching the dubs, you're kind of missing out on some good voice acting these days. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd agree. Like, there are a lot of shows I actually prefer dub. Like, those aforementioned, like, shonen shows mm-hmm. I actually find. Yeah, like the Hero Academia is really good. <laughs> yeah. My Hero Academia in particular is like one of the few anime that I I, I can literally watch either or, and I yeah. don't have any yeah, other show like that. Same. But in terms of stuff that you'll need to pay attention to, I think Kazuya-san will demand your attention if you watch the OVA, because, again, it is so immaculately made. Hmm, yeah. And actually, since that was my first experience with the story, and after that, I only checked out the first volume until this podcast where I read the entire story, like, it did form, like, kind of some ideas I had about, like, what to expect going into reading the series. And I think one thing that surprised me, of course, one thing that was absent in the OVA was the subplot with Inoue Senpai, which Mm -hmm. I actually found myself enjoying. I actually like the resolution of that. It's like kind of an incident that made both Kazi and Yamada realize they have to be more clear with communicating with each other. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I actually really appreciated the friendship in a way has with Kaze. Like, I like their competitive, friendly rivalry, and I like that in the flashback, it's kind of like a reversal of what you'd normally expect with like these senpai kohai relations is like Kaze like looks up to in a way as like, her senpai, like, she's the mentor figure. But it's actually, turns out that Kaze is more of a mentor to Inoue, because Inoue was kind of 
you know, struggling in the track team and she wasn't very confident she could run the 4K or whatever. And like, it was Kaza who like reached out to her and say, hey, let's practice together. I know you can do this. Yeah. And I like that friendship. Yeah. So I like that character. And I like that she's kind of sticking around too to look out for Kaze and is also kind of one of the trusted friends of Kaze and Yamada. I also like that when Yamada faces is face down with Inoue, she she stands up. <laughs> yes, it's a huge yeah. moment where she says, you know, no, like I'm I'm not that person that you're making fun of me that you're teasing me and like stop it. And Inoue is like, oh, okay, backing off now. Yeah. It's like in this nice moment of again of Yamada's growth mm-hmm. in terms of again be more assertive, and I appreciate that anyway isn't like this wasn't like actually this kind of like jealous rival love interest character. She was like just teasing Yamada, like she kind of already feared out Kaze and Yamada were like a couple, and they were, she was just kind of like teasing Kaze. And mm-hmm. her. so I like, I actually really enjoyed that. Yeah, that was the the only other thing about the OVA that I was disappointed by was it seemed to just like really focus on how in love they were and removed a lot of the like complications that caused them to like learn and grow and and participate in that relationship because yeah. they wanted to avoid that complication that was actually a conscious yeah. decision is yeah. like let's not throw in this point this plot which for somebody who's never seen the series is would be pointless. Like it yeah, makes that's sense fair. if you've exactly. seen the beginning part. And since the music video clip was the whole first volume. Yes. And if you'd seen that six minute video clip you already knew where you were starting. I like very much that we start the manga for the first couple of volumes. Every chapter starts, we've been going out for six months. We've been going out for a year. We've been going, like, that's the entire story right there. You don't need, like, yeah. there doesn't have to be three <laughs> pages of angsty backstory, you know? And so they did the same thing. With, right. They did the same thing with the jealousy plot, which was, this isn't about that. This is about the two of them and communication and development of their relationship. And it was a conscious decision, which I actually liked, because I hate the fact that, you know, we don't know these two, if you've never seen the story, why throw in... What would appear, if you didn't know the story, to be a, I don't know, pointless complication? It would have been distracting. I think so. Because, again, if you if your first experience with the series was the OVA, you want to focus on their relationship, focus centrally on Kazuya Yamada and how their relationship is growing and developing. And so to introduce Inoue on top of that, would have just taken time away from that without like having to gotten to know Yamada and Kaze first. Because again with the manga, you have three volumes before yeah. in a way shows up. Exactly. So you have that time. But with the OVA, that would have been too much to squeeze in. It's a tricky line that people who make, you know, these OVAs have to walk, I think, mm-hmm. because they're partially an advertisement for the manga to get more people into it. And partially a treat for the people who have already been reading the manga to get to see the characters that they love animated. And so they have to walk this line between, well, what are the people who are already fans of the series going to want to see? And what are people who have never seen the series before going to be interested by? And it really depends on what the point of the movie or the OVA is. Like the difference between an OVA and a theatrical release are are kind of big. An OVA 
was originally uh, original video animation. It would come out as a, a box set. Right. One direct to video. Direct to video. Right, direct to video. It never went into the theater. It never went on TV. And those things were like short lost leaders for manga. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> OVA continues to be seen a bit like a lost leader. And it's only the last few years that you have theatrical releases that are meant to be theatrical releases and not just Gundam Wing the movie or Nanaha the First, where yeah. you have uh, Magical Girl Oracle. Nanaha the First is literally the third retelling of the same first season. And it's just, it's mm-hmm. the same thing, and it's meant only for hardcore fans who the hell would care about it otherwise. But, or something like, you know, you get something like Gundam Wing. The movie was initially, way back in the day, just a literally taking key scenes from the animation that took like a year to watch, and they just crunched it into a movie. Mm-hmm. And that was, it, the movie was, it was just a summation of the whole season. So it's it's only recently we're starting to see real theatrical releases aside from like real movie people. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, yes, you've got like you've got like, you know, your name, which is like a whole different thing. It's not really an anime movie anymore, it's just a movie. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's just a movie like, that is animated. Right, exactly. Japanese film of all time. Right, exactly. And then you have these the- these theatrical releases of anime and some of them now in the last year or two are starting to be like like Liz and the Bluebird. It's mm-hmm. not a leader for a manga so much. I think it's based on a novel in the in the series. Yeah, it's like an extension of the sound euphonia. Right, exactly. Franchise. But it's not yeah. it's not a lost leader for sound euphonia. I didn't even right. know watching it it had anything to do with it until I started to write my review. So what you've got is you've got these these <laughs> completely this is all standalone theatrical release. Yeah. You know, I mean like, I've never mm-hmm. I've never consumed any of the sound euphonium franchise. I tried. And I watched <laughs> I watched the movie Liz and the Bluebird for the podcast, and I was like, "This is one of the best movies I've ever seen." Yeah, yeah. I mean, it stands on its own Absolutely. as a feature because it focuses on second characters from that franchise, so you don't really need that context. Like, you recognize the other characters from the show when they pop. Like, there's this yeah, scene where like, literally they're opening a door, and it's just like the main characters of Sound Euphonium are there, and it's just and like so that missed me completely scene. because I didn't watch that. But yeah, and particularly yeah. one thing that actually did make sense when I was watching Was in the Bluebird is I hated quote unquote the camera work. I dislike mm. intensely that very specific. I think that's Kiwani that. Let's yeah. get a foot, an ankle, a shoulder, a head, an oh, eye. Oh, that's a, I love that. <laughs> that's a Naoko Yamada thing. That is a specific Naoko Yamada. Thing. I hate it. Like she really likes to emphasize legs. No, but it's no, it's not the legs. It's knee, then head, then yeah. arm, then foot, then eye, then ear. Then I'm nauseous. I'm yeah, nauseous by the end of it. Of the I can't. Cu- it carves people up. Yeah, but like back the camera away. Back the camera away <laughs> it's, it's a body of work that you're not a fan of oh, oh my god can't stand it aren't you but guys glad you're not like that too. <laughs> i'm sorry what i said it's avant-garde yes <laughs> it's i appreciate the, i don't I, I can see that perspective but i just from an animator perspective, i like the how much character she can get across with, like, just simple gestures. Sure. Yeah. And if you did that periodically, it'd be great. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But imagine actually doing that in real life. Imagine standing in front of somebody going, look at their eyeball so close you can see the curve of the lens. 
<laughs> now look up their nose. Now stare at their ankle. Now look at their shoulders. Let's look at their lap for five solid seconds. I mean, speaking as someone who almost never makes eye contact with other humans, that is kind of how I operate. So maybe that's why I liked it. (laughs) It's the it's the staring at eyeball so so closely that I can see the curve of their lens, and you didn't make the eyeball look real. It makes me want to put my fist through a wall. But I think that also brings up an interesting point in uh, the Kaze-san manga is that, you know, in terms of, we don't have a lot of these scenes where, like, a character's body is fragmented in a way that's voyeuristic for the reader. Yeah. yeah. Like, whenever there is an instance of, like, a close-up of a part of the character's body, it is specific in the context of Kaze or Yamada, like, looking and fixating on their partner's body yes. and, like, Absolutely. There's a specific perspective there. Mm-hmm. So it's not like fan service for the sake of the reader, where it's like, why is the camera focusing on this if not for it is directly the artist to the reader right. for like you, but there's no in story reason. for your perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Like in Kaze san, it's like very specific. This is part of the story, like this sexual tension between Kaze yes. and Yamada and the fact that they are paying attention to each other's bodies and they have like these feelings that they are working straight. Absolutely. I I once got a question from a parent, uh, which was, I think that my daughter might be bisexual. Is there any, and she really likes anime. Is there any kind of like anime or manga that you would recommend for her to sort of like explore that? And, you know, I had to ask about the age and everything. And I was like, you know, Probably Kase-san, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a good choice. Yeah. And yay for mom. Right? Like, <laughs> I, I still think about that conversation. But Kase-san is so accessible as a Yuri yeah. because mm-hmm. a lot of those... I remember when I first started my Yuri collection, I had a lot of uh, friends ribbing me for my porn collection. Mm-hmm. And... um. <laughs> I think one of the things that made Kase-san, and I mean, there were there were other Yuris at the time. I, I can't think of any. Erica, you can probably speak on that more than I can. But it was very wholesome yeah. in a way that it feels like a lot of other Yuris that were coming out in English at the time were not. Yeah. Right. To some extent, it's the limitation of, uh, I talk about this all the time. It's the limitation of what the publishers are willing to offer in Japan are willing to offer the publishers here in America. And the publishers on both sides are mostly usually men and what mm-hmm. audience they're trying to sell it to. So you have, you know, uh, Jason over at Seven Seas licensing from Nakamura-san over at Ishijinsha. You know, these people are both men and they're looking at their audience going, okay, so I want to be able to sell this to you know, people who will buy, which is women, but also men if it has a monster girl thing, or maybe it's a little lowly, or so, you know, they're constantly juggling. And plus, even at the beginning of the 2000s, uh, 2010s, we were still talking about Yuri as a genre being a very, very thinly defined genre. So the publishers will define it the easiest way. Do the men and the women both buy schoolgirl stuff? Boom, schoolgirl stuff it is. You know, I would just, you mm-hmm. know, and do we have porn with schoolgirls? Yes. Do we have love stories with schoolgirls? Yes. And it's all schoolgirls all the time, but everybody will be happy, including the publishers. And they're all going to keep putting out the same kinds of things. I'm actually going to address this in my upcoming video 
for Yuri Studio. Um, so you have you have what appears like it's all porn with schoolgirls, but it was if you look at who the authors are, sometimes it's men for men. But in the case of the magazines like Hirari, it was actually men and women for men and women, but they were all assumed to be adult. So Tsubomi and Kamakuri Hime and Harari were all focusing on an adult audience. So regardless of where the characters were in life, the audience who was reading was presumed to be an adult. And that's why you got so much sort of porny stuff. <laughs> you know, and we have a lot more variety now, but even so, the publishers are very conservative and they always want to hold things into very small categories where things are easily sellable. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. I guess also to tie back with, you know, Takashima at the end of the Wild Chelsea questioning, what does it mean to be pure? What is pure? It is a pure Yuri anthology, Harari, yeah. 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 It's like, obviously, that's just whatever the publisher decides, oh, we're going to run yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, so. it's magically pure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I, what I appreciate about, like, this wholesome quality to Tatsu-san, it's not necessarily the characters are chased. Right. Like, actually... Like, there is palpable sexual tension. Yep. Kaz, like herself, has sex on the mind a lot, and whenever Yamada makes something, uh, a statement remotely suggestive, mm -hmm. like, she completely loses it, oh, <laughs> which okay. is very funny. I, I want to mention really quick, um, there's a lot of scenes in Yuri where one of the people in the couple ends up Googling porn, and <laughs> Kase-san has my favorite version of that. <laughs> <laughs> There's a there's a um, manga out right now in Japan uh, called Whispering You a Love Song, Sasayaku Sasa Yoni uh, Koyo Atal, that I adore by Takashima Eku, and I hope it gets licensed in it. It's a high school story. And one of the characters, the two characters are now going out officially for the first time, and Yuri Senpai Googles what to do on a first date, and for the first time ever, she gets Yuri, but not porn. So she's, <laughs> she says, you know, what, you know, girls dating, and she gets like something that's clearly a, a Maria Samagamitaru clone. And that's I was awesome. like, yay, we didn't get the porn thing. <laughs> like, I'm so happy. That's wonderful. I was so that's excited that they're like, we could just leave that stereotype because when you go, what do girls do? You don't necessarily, even if you look up lesbian, it's not the only thing on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> that was was porn. Sometimes you actually get like romance and stories about other things and, and lesbian magazines and stuff. So it was really nice to see that go away. I mean, in Yamada's defense, she did specifically Google what what can girls do beyond kissing. Yes, so absolutely. Kind of <laughs> <laughs> but I still yeah, think I it going straight to porn something. is a little bit of a push now. <laughs> yeah. It's a little bit of a trope. I, did she not find auto straddle? I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was also mostly funny because then her mom walks in on her immediately. Yeah, right. <laughs> She's yeah. like, I'm going to bed now. <laughs> yeah, another classic. Uh-oh, uh, accidental not safe for work search. Better close this. <laughs> Someone's walked in on me. Gotta delete my history. <laughs> but what I like about the exploration of sexuality in the series is that it is kind of slow, like these both Kaze and Yamada kind of figuring out each other's boundaries mm -hmm. and like what each other like is comfortable with like sexually, physically. In the first time they attempted, you know, when Kaze touches Yamada's boob, like she reacts like 
surprised, like she didn't wasn't expecting it, and so like it kind of stops there because like Kaze is rejectful of those boundaries, and then the second time, you know, when they finally you know go forward it in like volume five towards the end of the series when they finally uh, decide to have their first time, sort of happens again, but then like Yamada explicitly uh, very. Uh, assertively says no, no, it's fine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like this, I am comfortable with this. Which that I good, good it. consent. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Also, I really it's... like that it's not kind of going back to that Yuri and porn thing. Like it's not, it's not portrayed in a titillating way. Not at like, all. Like these scenes mm-hmm. are not in there just to be like, ooh, sexy for the viewer. It has a specific purpose in forwarding, like moving their relationship forward and and developing their relationship to each other and how, you know, they are with each other. And like you said, it's exploring their their own boundaries and the issues of consent around them. Mm-hmm. That's part mm-hmm. of what changes. It felt genuinely, like, intimate. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Which is which casts us even more in the role of the voyeur. is doing the looking, and it's not just the reader. Right, right exactly. But but what's interesting is that did change because the first volume is much more. But I think like again that sense of uh, intimacy and kind of like like vulnerability in that navigation of not just like the relationship but also sex like it is just an extension of this theme of communication and the importance of that and understanding your partner's feelings right and like learning how to recognize them and then. Like, it's through, like, proper communication, like, being on the same page. That's, like, how the relationship, like, kind of grows and, you know, just becomes happier and more solid. A lot of this series is about communication and language and the, mm. the way that language is used to move relationships forward, right? And mm. I love the way that... That is mirrored not just in the actual, you know, words that Kase and Yamada say to each other and to those around them and how they grow their relationships, but also in the the Hanakotaba. Yeah. The flower language, because mm. there's a lot of different layers of communication. And it's not just like the the what the characters are saying to each other. It's the body language and the way the characters are drawn and which specific flowers Hiromi Takashima puts on each <laughs> volume and what they mean. <laughs> and it's it's very poignant and it's very well done. And if you're a otaku like me who wants to know like every single detail oh, yeah, of symbolism exactly. in every manga ever. And Hanukotaba is so evocative, too, and it's so specific. It's so good. Like, I, I wrote down when we, I actually dug up our notes from yesteryear when we covered mm-hmm. Kasei-san and Kasei-san and Yamada, mm-hmm. and we talked about all of the different kinds of flowers that mm-hmm. they have and how they just, like, each specific flower that is picked as a representative for each of the volumes echoes the theme yes. of that volume. Mm. And it's so dope. Yeah. I was actually thinking about this recently because there was a uh, there's a website, a BL website called Chill Chill, and they just put out a BL Yuri anthology. And I couldn't understand for why I sat there and read that article like five times trying to figure out why... And basically what they thought they meant by it was that it's 
basically the two characters are both uh, okay, is what they thought of as B.L. Yuri. And I said, could you not pick some any other flower in the entire world? There's like 15 <laughs> million kinds of flowers, and you have to use it really? And, and, um, and basically, people are like, no, that's not really working for them. And I'm thinking, it's there's so many flowers. You could have done anything, anything at all. You know, and Barra in that case would have actually been valid for the first time ever. So you might not want him to use that. But no, I think that the thing about Hanakotaba is that everyone talks about it like they all have specific meanings. But if you actually look up Lily, for instance, there's like 72 meanings. So <laughs> the reality of Hanakotaba is, and the Victorian language of flowers, for those of you looking it up in English, is that it meant basically whatever you thought you wanted to mean by it, which meant it was very not specific. It's a specific. Victorian thing that has very fungible definitions. So you 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 hear about Lily, people say Lily meant purity, but if you actually look at Victorian Lily, it means like betrayal. <laughs> it doesn't mean purity at all. It's like maybe in the Middle Ages it might have been, but it didn't seem to really have that meaning by the Victorian period where language of flowers became popular. And yet it's used as a sort of purity image so so the the actual thing about hanakotaba is basically whatever you want something to mean it can mean on the other hand then it doesn't make it has any meaning at all so it's so fascinating i love hanakotaba because it really doesn't make any sense yeah. <laughs> i'm going to give you a, a yeah. i'm going to give you a pink carnation oh you want to be my friend forever no i meant i wanted you to die <laughs> like that's oh. I can't this stuff. it really is like that it really is like <laughs> forget me not means both don't forget me. Forget me not. Also, forget me. <laughs> also, lose my number. <laughs> I've wiped you out of my memory. You know, it's, it's so bizarre. Yeah, I think that flowers can mean different things to different people, putting in context. One thing that I like about Kaosei-san is that the flowers have like a specific kind of meaning in the relationship between Kaze and Yamada. Like, they meet over the morning glories. Yamada sees Kaze is kind of like a sunflower. Mm-hmm. And, like, how brilliantly, like, she kind of shines. And the tulips are, like, one of the last flowers that they plant together in high school. So I like the use of flowers to represent different stages of the relationships and their feelings yes, toward women. right. If you want that list in order... It is Morning Glories is the first big flower that's featured, then sunflowers, then hydrangeas, then tulips, and then cherry blossoms during, of course, the final volume with the, uh, with, of course, everything that changes. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Hydrangeas are also a really key image, not just in Japanese life, but also in your as well, because it, it also harkens back to all other stories, including things like a parasol of Sashte in Maria Samagamitharu, where the hydrangeas mm-hmm. are a whole theme because they're so changeable, because their their name in Japanese means that they change color, you know, they're changing, they're changeable. And the fact that they change color means that hydrangeas means that feelings might change, that you're inconsistent. So they have a whole <laughs> ongoing poetic meaning in Japanese literature as well. Because they have hydrogen. Mm-hmm. So there's that as well. I'm trying to figure out which volume the hydrangeas were featured in. And I can't, it's either Shortcake or Apron. I think it's And those cake. are the two where I you have. I think it's Shortcake. Oh, I've got that right here. Let me take a look. Because Yamada brings Kase a bouquet of hydrangeas 
after she goes to watch her run and then she leaves and then she comes back because she realizes that Kase is lonely. Oh, is that was that that the bus stop scene? Yeah, that's the bus stop scene. Okay. And then of course you've got all of the like shoujo flowers well, as well, well which are all yeah. wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> they don't they don't necessarily have to do with the ongoing meaning of their relationship, but they're fantastic. <laughs> I just really like that specifically Yamada always gets flowers around her when she's like bright and shiny. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I like that too. I like the fact that she is shown with a little the little sprout in her head showing her mm-hmm. it's cute. Yeah. Because it shows that she's kind of like at the beginning she's for, sort of formless. Like she hasn't grown yeah. yet. But also becomes very much her identity as a person who's really deeply passionately in love with horticulture. Mm-hmm. Which I love. Yeah, I would love to see that sprout become mm. a flower eventually. Yeah, that would be cool. That would be cool. That'd be cool symbolism in the show. She's finally truly grown into yeah. her own. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine trying to pick a flower yeah. though? <laughs> I, 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 I pick the daisy because for her, I think the daisy is the perfect. It's it's you know it's a sunny, bright, cheerful, hearty flower. Yeah, and it's got that sort of. You know, the white with the yellow. And to me, that's sort of the way she's always shown. It does kind of, like, position her as this sort of, like, ray exactly. of sunshine. Mm-hmm. Uh, which she absolutely, absolutely. is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's it's a really interesting series for as much for what it is not as for what it is. There's a lot of tropes and stereotypes it just leaves behind, and we just don't do it. Um, we have, a, you know, a first school love that doesn't end at the end of school. Um, it, we don't have any sort of histrionic here. There's no character in it who's histrionic. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no, you know, super hyper emotionally intense, you know, glowery, dark haired character who just can't get over whatever, you know, that happened to them when they were kids or whatever. Uh, we don't have a lot of high melodrama. It's very small, very realer as it goes on, very real drama. Things like just being nervous mm-hmm. around Kasa-san's admirers, you know, stuff that makes sense. Um, when I fell in love with my senpai, who is now my wife, you know, she had lots of admirers around her. It was often hard to uh, get close to her, and I had to kill them all before I could be her friend. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I do joke about that a lot because I was not her first best friend. I had there was a number of them we had to kind of wait for her to get tired of before she she saw me existing. <laughs> but we were very young, so I had plenty of time. So uh, yeah, I mean, so but there's a lot of things that the series does that are not the typical, and I think it really set up the 2010s, particularly the late 2010s when it when it moved to Wing, this magazine. I think it set the late 2010s for Yuri does not have to be in school. Yuri does not have to be wrapped around histrionics. It does not have to have uh, the typical dark-haired, older senpai, intense character and the genki, light-haired kohai. It can do things beyond that and still be a really good, solid Yuri story. And I, and mm-hmm. I appreciate Takashima Sensei's efforts in that regard because every series that subverts some of those tropes or just even more importantly, just ignores them, sets a new pathway down for somebody else to walk. And watching what's coming out in Japan right now in this comic Yurihime September issue. I saw a number of series going, you know what? We're not doing that normal thing. We're going to do this other thing over here. And there wasn't a lot of huge change, but it's a lot of small incremental change, which really gives me hope for the genre. 
a role. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It is a very transformative work. And I, I feel like it's transformative of Yuri in Japan, but it also feels very transformative of Yuri in English, too. Like, the first volume of this came out in uh, February of 2017. And I feel like that sort of that 2017 era, three years ago, maybe four, is when we really started to kind of see a shift in what Yuri is in English publications. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I think 2017 was a monumental year for Yuri, BL, and LGBT works. Since then, we've not only gotten so many high-profile ones that have like kind of breached public consciousness, but also the volume of titles that have been getting licensed and translated now across pretty much every publisher has been quite extraordinary. It really is just a matter of, of getting an audience, a market that was big enough, is what it really comes down to. Mm -hmm. So so you're right. I think, I yeah. think Kasa-san was one of the big breakouts in that. Citrus did that too. But I think, I think the <laughs> series that has... The series that firmly set Yuri into this can sell in numbers is Bloom into You, which is interesting mm, because yeah. it's really just another schoolgirl story, but mm. it hit, it was the zeitgeist. It hit the right place, the right time, the right characters, mm -hmm. the right tropes in the right space with just a little bit of LGBTQ awareness and Sayaka. I was going to say, oh, Erica, yeah. my name, my, I named my Sayaka. cat Sayaka. <laughs> oh, yeah. You're talking I to the choir. I wait for you folks to read that third volume. Not just because we finally get to see Sayaka, she, who she is, but there's such incredible bitchiness under there that's, but like funny, <laughs> it's funny. There's an ongoing joke with her and Edamoto that just cracks me up every time. I can't wait for everybody to read it and be like, did she just do that? Like, it's just, she's so serious, right? She never, she never cracks on the surface and she still doesn't, but there's stuff that's going on under the surface that's actually really very funny. And at the end of this third novel, I, I think you'll all be really, you'll really feel that that was worth the wait. I, I really hope so. I thought it was a great third novel. So yeah, I think Bloom into You was kind of, you know, the 2020, 2019, 2020 uh, breakout hit. But we're at a point now where the market for Yuri and also the market for LGBTQ and queer work overall is established. And having established it, companies know that there's money there to be had if they don't completely right. dick over like, you know, like DC and Marvel still can't quite figure out how not to be dicks. But <laughs> there's, a, there's a website you know uh what to do what was like what did what was the last time dc did something stupid today and it's, it's always down to zero days zero days since dc did something stupid and i think it's hilarious because it's also very depressing but it's very funny but the bottom line is that, the, that when once a market is established it's very hard to not notice and mm -hmm. it's pretty clear that in manga bl and yuri and in queer work are all established. So you're going to see more because these are audiences that now are large enough and proven enough that they're making money for the companies so that they're wor it's worth investing. Well, yeah, I mean, we got Blue Flag over here now and that blows right. my mind. Yes. Even just yes. in like the last couple of years, like, because for a while it kind of felt like Seven Seas was the only game in town, they right? Were. They were. And... Now we're getting all kinds of releases from Yen Press and from Viz. Just like tons and tons more series are being picked up all the time. Yeah, Viz, the Viz thing is so <laughs> fascinating that Viz finally, it was like, 
two things happened at the end of last year that blew my mind wide open. Viz, who is the behemoth here in America, which means mm-hmm. they've got like 30 people, not 10. You know? and, uh, I'm joking. This is bigger <laughs> than that, but... Second largest comics publisher in the North Absolutely. American market. After Scholastic. Really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Nope. Huh. Which I love. I love when share. people say, well, Mung is still a small portion. I'm like, actually, Viz alone is <laughs> like 30% of the market. Or something like that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's a business yeah. mass behemoth in terms of the American manga market. And Shogakukan, who was the big behemoth in terms of Japanese publishing, both turned their eyes towards Yuri last year, at the end of last year. And it was like, woot, that's it. We're done. There's no new room to conquer in terms of being recognized as a genre. Now, there's still yeah. a lot of new mm. pathways to forge and yay, but th- for the moment. And of course, then there's things like you look at Pixiv and Patreon, is all these queer creators are out there doing really good stuff that hasn't yet been licensed, but a lot of it is coming out. Katakawa. Man, Katakawa is like, does it have girls? Yes. Does it have guys? Yes. Okay, fine. Let's do it. <laughs> money, 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 money. Because they, they know they can make money with those anthologies and they're doing a great job of it. So they're all for investing in it. So when you see the publishers in Japan throwing money at it, the publishers in America start throwing money at it, and if the money comes in, it's here. It's here to stay. So I think we really are always, every few years, it, it kind of, you always get like sort of a, a wave form on this. You get a peak and it kind of dills down a little bit and then you get another peak. And every, every five to seven years, there's like a breakout series that brings a whole new group of people, a new gateway series that brings a whole new group of people in. And I think Bloom to You is definitely the most recent one of those. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Oh, speaking of Yuri and DC, Harley. the Harley Quinn show is very oh, good. Harley Quinn yeah. is awesome. Yes. Oh I gosh. just started watching that and I can't believe they, they just made Ivy like full yeah. lesbian. Yes. Oh my gosh. Good the relationship shit. between Harley and Ivy is so, so yeah. good in that. I, I don't know. I still don't know after all this time if I think it's it's the thing that I want, but it's a very interesting uh idea that they just went ahead and did that and they did their angsty relationship just like every other Yuri angsty relationship which is hilarious <laughs> like, like, here, like in our heads of course they've known each other for decades <laughs> you know? but in this story we had to reestablish that whole thing and them being awkward around each other I like them in uh, I think it was episode 9 or 10 where they keep waking up next to each other in bed and being like Whoa! oh my god how did we get into that <laughs> so that was really fun I yeah. just I, I've been craving a series that respects Harley's Tell intelligence. Oh, yeah. And this yeah. one is, I kind of agree with you. It's not exactly what I wanted out of a Harley and Ivy thing, but it's it's still doing yeah. it for me. I just wish Eris was better. I, mean, I really, I have a very personal relationship with the goddess of chaos and discord. And I hate that everybody now does it <laughs> the same way they did her in Xena. It's like, I, there was a beautiful, I'll, I'll share the link with you guys. There's a beautiful uh, photo set of the Greek gods this week from a Brazilian photographer who has Eris. And that was Eris. She's like, come at me, I will fuck you up. And she has the golden apple with a bite out of it in her hand. And I'm looking, and she's looking at you like, bring it on. I'm going to kill you. And I was like, yes, finally. And Eris isn't like, oh, I'm slimy, cool, gothy punk. How, you know, it's like, no, like, she'd be like, whatever, you know, I have absolutely zero inches. Her, her weapon is the nail bat. You know what I'm saying? Like, she's not here to play. She's here to fuck things up for fucking up purposes. So I, I hate, I hated the way they did Eris, which was like, hi, I'm every other character out of Xena. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think to go back with like, now there's just 
more like mainstream recognizability, uh, at least in the anime punk community. Like, I definitely think the story of like Kaze, you know, growing from what was really just intended to be a one shot and then as a full fledged series to the point where I got like this massively successful OVA and then it's still continuing mm-hmm. telling its story. Like, I think that is very. Atlantic representative of just like kind of the persistence and the growth of yeah. the genre, both in Japan and internationally. Yeah. And also, I think yeah, Takashima's sure. her resilience and her strength. I mean, she just never questioned that she had the right to do it, or that it had the you know that people <laughs> ought to be reading it. You know that, that mm-hmm. she was like, well, yeah. they hired me, and then they kept paying me, so I kept doing it. <laughs> it made perfect sense to her. Like, why would she stop? Yeah, and that also reflects a growing trend of like creators taking charge to tell the stories yeah. they want to tell, and not letting kind of the whims of publishers or outside forces stop that. Like taking it online independently, or even you know just continuing to work with the publisher, like in the case of Takahima, to just continue the story yeah. they want to tell. And that's a trend we've seen a lot of, and that's why there's so many independent comics, web comics that have become huge obviously we talked about this with Nagata Kabi and like her origins as a pixiv comic mm-hmm. that really you know was incredibly groundbreaking especially when it entered like the mainstream and it's, yeah it's like a really nice trend of like we have like more lgbtq stories more your abl stories that are getting more of an audience thanks to online audiences and more accessibility and more opportunity for the creators to reach yeah, out to shout yeah. out miyuri Haranashi right now she's Patreon that i follow she yeah. work is fantastic she does stories of a, a lesbian a butch lesbian and it's basically yeah. and she's charming as heck she does them in japanese yeah. and english i recommend her highly uh, her work is just charming, and I really hope that we'll see her. Tr- I would love very much to see her published in the near future in English, because I think people would really, really uh, just resonate. She's very, very relatable. Uh, her stuff is funny, and it's it's touching, and I just I think it's it's a great story as an autobiographical narrative. Absolutely, she's her storytelling is hilarious. I absolutely love following it. Yeah, definitely shout out to her. I kind of love that, you know, one of the things that Takashima-sensei circles back to at the end of every volume of Kase-san is what is pure yuri? And I mm-hmm. think that we've kind of established pure yuri is the story that Takashima wants to tell <laughs> and whatever they can get away with. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> and that's kind of what it should be, right? I mean, and ideally what we could say is pure yuri is anything that yuri creators want to say and what yuri readers want to read. Yeah. And again, that's, mm-hmm. that's, that's absolutely we we the topic it, of the upcoming video on yuri is what makes a story yuri. That is literally what we're going to be talking about. Awesome. I'm looking forward to that. And yeah, I think we covered a lot of ground with Kase-san and like it's what makes it special and then it's kind of placed in the broader context of how the Yuri genre has developed over the 2010s. There are three more like stray things I kind of wanted to briefly bring up that I liked about the series that I found interesting. One is that I really appreciated, again, our how Takashima's art developed from beginning to end. We did talk about it earlier, but one thing that I very much noticed early on was kind of the way she drew her arms and legs. They were very noodly, very thin, 
And as the series develops, like, they kind of get more form. Like, you kind of get more of a sense of uh, the anatomy of the character. So I like her artistic development in that sense. I think that also contributes to kind of the characters looking older and more mature as the series goes on, too. Mm -hmm. Definitely her faces are a lot more rounder and squatter, whereas they thin out a lot more as the series Mm -hmm. develops as well. And that also contributes to that mature look. But also in terms of the art, one thing that I really loved about the transition from uh, high school to uh, college in the Kazusanya Mai series was she started drawing some really beautiful backgrounds mm-hmm. in Kazusanya Mai, like the cityscape, just the sunset scenes, the even the scenes like inside like the flower shop that Yamada goes to work at. Like there are so many more really beautifully detailed backgrounds with much more like complex shading in Kazusan Yamada and I really liked how like the world really like kind of opened up and developed with more of like a concrete sense of place sure. in that way yeah in Kazusan well, because a, a high school is a high school is a high school is a high school in Japan they all, yeah. they all functionally are, are very similar and so the story wasn't about place at all but yes because now they're in Tokyo and Tokyo is part of the story their experiences of existing in this space is much more part of the story so i agree i th- I agree mm. with that entirely and i think it's also her art has developed i mean in the real world her art is just has just developed itself so you can see there's a lot more surety in the lines and a lot more mm-hmm. confidence in the way she uh, visualizes things I think one of the Absolutely. things we even talked about in our episode on the first volume of kasai san and yamada was just how gorgeous the backgrounds are, like specifically oh, yeah. in the um the flower shop where she goes to work. Yeah. It's so beautiful. I'm looking at that and I'm looking at the the scene where they go for a walk yes. at night. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so pretty. She she's drawing all of the like nightlife yep. scenery and the sunrise too. Like there's so many just beautiful moments that are illustrated and i like that that she even kind of lampshades that at the end of yamada where she's like yeah they ended up hanging out at night a lot in this one. <laughs> <laughs> and i just like a yeah. lot of the little touches like the way the outside of the university and then a the disco dormitory that um that causes song like it looks Totally, excuse me, totally like a dormitory. Like, you could tell, like that <laughs> sign, I could see the color of the tiles in my head in the real world. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, I feel like I've walked past that dormitory, you know, a thousand times. And so I, I just like those very small, very realistic touches. Or And it's beyond just when you see in any given manga where you have like a chain store like McDonald's and they call it McDonald's and they just change the... <laughs> the it's like it's a sense of reality like it feels like a real building not just generic building mm-hmm. totally and i don't think we ever touched on my favorite aspect of the art i say favorite just in that i think it's the funniest <laughs> is that every man in this series is drawn with the, the dorkiest no yeah, no face i love how i love like when they go to the bar because yamada it is lampshaded by being the cruelly drawn faces yeah. bar that's just so brilliant yeah. <laughs> yeah i like it just as a statement of like 
they're not interested and in I the actually voices. dislike they it don't a lot. Matter. I'll be honest. I'm going to stand in oh. opposition. I very much dislike series that don't show us the faces of the men as if they're not human at all. Uh, or or just don't really don't even show them at all. They're just blank. That really skews me. Um, yeah. I, I don't like women. I guess I could I, see I that. I like to think of women living in a world mm-hmm. where men don't exist. I mean, I'm not a woman-only person. I would never go to like a women-only festival or something. It, it sort of pisses me off. I live a fully woman-only life, uh, really. I mean, I live with my wife, and we pretty much only talk to each other right now because we don't go outside. But even so, if I'm going to get an air conditioner person in, they're probably going to be a guy, and I'm going to talk to him, and his name is Ed, and he's a really nice guy. I'm not going to not see him. And it just kind of honestly skews me when the men are generic and dull-faced or non-faced. Because it, mm-hmm. I mean, I get right. the point of the 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 gokai. They're all meant to be just you know generic men, but I feel like it's not fair to to them or to me that these women are pretending to exist in a non yeah. a world where these people don't really exist. They're not real. Well, I get that. Yeah, I think that's totally valid. Yeah. One thing I appreciate though is that it's specifically just boys. Kaze and Yamada's age, and specifically boys that like are harassing yeah. Yamada usually. Because, like, adult men in the series, we see their faces. That's like, there's true. That's Yamada's, Yamada's teacher. That looks out for no, Yamada, you know, yeah. Really that, you know, she talks to. That's a friendly relationship. Yeah. And, yeah, like, the boys that, you know, have the cruelly drawn faces, they're always in these comics of, like, they're trying to take up yeah. Yamada and mm-hmm. he's uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. So, Kaze has to come in and, like, shoot him away. So, in, like, these generic kind of bad guy roles. That's a really good point that I had noticed. So, I'll, I'll totally give that as a valid point. Yeah, I I could see where Eric is coming from, but I, I you know, it, it'd be one thing if, like, if they're just, like, hanging out or whatever, and they're talking, and then, like, they just look straight in the camera and go, boy, Kase-san, all men are terrible, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I guess in the universe of Kase-san and Yamada, you have to earn your face. <laughs> yeah. You have to be a, like a decent dude. <laughs> like personally, I, I, I thought that was a really funny touch, and I thought it was genuinely like one of one of the funniest things about this manga. All right, fair. I just I love that this manga isn't afraid to <laughs> yeah, be funny. No, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and in addition so to being a very like rooted, emotionally honest story, it's genuinely funny, and I love that. It has a lot of really goofy parts. Yes. I know. Yeah. Yeah. Individually goofy and goofy together. There's a yeah. part mm-hmm. where I think it's oh yeah it's when they're going to Okinawa and uh, Yamada is flying on a plane for the first time and she's literally so excited when the plane is taking off that yes. she's sitting she's sitting behind <laughs> Miko Achi going the airplane is flying we're flying hey the airplane flies it's <laughs> just so funny it was one of the parts that made me actually laugh it's but it's also so real and right? the first time you like... fly the first time mm-hmm. it's like ah! Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Mikawachi's like totally opposite. She's like, oh, oh my god, I, I'm scared. <laughs> when is this gonna end? <laughs> well, and Erica, you brought up something interesting. It's like they're both individually goofy and they're like goofy yep. together. Mm-hmm. And I also just love that. Like normally you have like Kasha is the oh, I'm the sports <laughs> character, so I'm too cool for school. But no, she's a giant <laughs> dork. Yeah. <laughs> and really the best couples we know are exactly like that. 
Like everyone who's yes, my friend exactly. is individually super dorkastic and funny and goofy and also together with their partner. Right. You know, they're, they're like, what, you, what even is your relationship if you can't stand in the kitchen and you know in the middle of the afternoon just making stupid noises at each other for right. 15 minutes exactly. <laughs> exactly. which to me sounds like yeah. a great place to end but that's... <laughs> <laughs> oh my god i love how they both make awkward goofy jokes for each other i think that my favorite was uh, at the vending machine when your mom is trying to get like the orange soda for mikoachi and, like, they had to interact with the boys. And then after they leave, Yamada's like, man, that was so rude. Did they think I didn't have any money just because I was in high school? <laughs> Jerk. <laughs> and then Kaze's, like, suggesting, oh, I'll buy you a soda, Yamada. What flavor do you want? And then, like, Nikoachi pops up, like, frustrated. And it's like, uh, orange, I guess. <laughs> and then we see that they bought her so many cans of orange <laughs> juice. Just as <laughs> apology. That was pretty good. But yeah, I mean, this series is really relatable, cute, and charming, and it stands out because it addresses a lot of nice, realistic things in relationships. Yeah. And I guess one last thing that I really liked that it does is that we see them kiss mm-hmm. a lot. Mm-hmm. Like, in a lot of manga, romance manga, it's just a struggle to see them get his relationship and then kiss at the end. But in this series, they actually kiss a lot and show each other their love a lot, and I appreciated that. There's a lot of cute PDA yeah. in this. Yeah. We don't yeah. have like four pages of them almost touching hands. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, don't it's get me wrong. Like... I love a four pages of, of formless yearning, but this is definitely a nice change of pace. Kasei right. really reminds me of like, um, really reminds me of something like my love story almost. Yeah. It, except, yes. Uh, yes. It's the difference with my love story being that, you know, they. They kind of skirt around the sexual tension as much as they possibly yeah. can. It's not, they're not fraught about even holding hands like they are in my love story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, this is a really great uh, love it story. Is. So, I mean, I think it goes without saying, we highly recommend it. And I'm looking forward to more volumes. So I'm hoping the next one comes out soon. I know that there hasn't been one out in Japan yet, so there might not be one coming out in English next year, which would probably be like the first year since Seven Seas are publishing it that we wouldn't well, have it's always volume. that way with the new series, because they're catching up on the old stuff, you know? Yeah. Now, now we have to wait. But it's still running. I haven't had a chance to mention it, but I just want to throw it out there. So, you know, as as someone who, you know, identifies as male... Um, I just want to say that, you know, this was also my first Yuri title that I read. And uh, oh, wow. I, I have to say, I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was very cute. Excellent. And I'm very, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to because uh, I, I read like the first five volumes of the series, and I haven't had the chance to like read the sequel series yet. And uh, I think I'm going to get started it's on that really soon. Lovely. Excellent. And what a that. good entry title choice. Yeah, it is a very good choice. Yeah. Yeah. And, and <laughs> I was going to say, admittedly, that's kind of like a part of the reason I haven't really been like talking as much is because I was I was way more interested in like what you guys had kind of had to say about the series because I'm like Yuri is really not like you know I'm I'm not against it obviously but it's like something kind of like BL where it's like it's totally not in my wheelhouse at all and I don't really know anything about the genre so like I was kind of more interested in like what you guys had to say about it and uh yeah but uh yeah no I I really enjoyed it though, cool. so I'm I'm definitely open to more Yuri Excellent. titles. So nice. Well, welcome to the genre. 
Yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. One of the things that I was going to say was, you know, like when we do our podcast, we do this thing at the end where it's like, well, would you recommend this to other people? And when we do that, of course, you know, we're your agent talking right, to your agent, exactly. right? <laughs> so in this case, you know, like this is a podcast whose audience is not primarily Yuri people. Mm-hmm. And I would, this is the Yuri that I would recommend to people who aren't Yuri people. If you just like cute romances, we brought up my love story earlier. If you liked Ori Monogatari, you're going to like this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah. I think it has the advantages of starting in school, but then moving into more adult stuff, which means that you're not stuck in school, which is part of what happened with a lot of the older things, the older Yuri. Um, and it leads into a lot of some of the uh, Shikaijin stuff that we'll be getting, uh, that we've just gotten and we'll be getting. So something like uh, Donuts Under the Crescent Moon, which was a really lovely story that's going to be coming out from Seven Seas next year. That kind mm. of adult life where you're trying to, you know, same kind of trying to figure out who you are, but it's it's nice to see some movement from one thing to another and not just be stuck in high school endlessly having that same right. one first love over and over and over and over. <laughs> yeah yeah thank you guys so much coming on to talk about the series with us and having just this great conversation thank you. it was about great it with us. yeah thank you thank so much you for having so us much. yeah this was so it's, much fun it's always a lo- uh, pleasure to, to speak to kit and sarah and of course to you guys so i absolutely am so thrilled to be here every time thank you i'm glad you guys had fun always. but also for our listeners to learn more about Yuri series and continue to deep dive into the world of Yuri, I want you guys to kind of shout out where people can find you and the work you guys do. Mm-hmm. So I guess starting off with Erica. Um, so you can always find me on Okazu, my blog, where I've been reviewing Yuri anime and manga and related media for 18 years. Wow. And um, mm. yeah, 22 will be our 20th anniversary in Okazu. Um, so you can find me on Twitter at Okazu Yuri, and you can find me on Facebook on the uh, YuriCon webpage and anywhere fine Yuri is sold. Also, we have a video channel now called Yuri Studio, and we're doing little um, little videos about what people ask us all the time at panels. Since we're not doing panels this year, uh, we put together a bunch of videos that'll talk about like the history of Yuri and some key questions we get. Is that on YouTube, It Erica? is on YouTube. Thank you very much. Nice. Yes, Yuri, Yuri Studio. I'm going to subscribe. Yes, please, subscribe. <laughs> um, and we have a Patreon as well, Okazu Patreon. Um, and that gives you behind-the-scenes access and, and whatever I feel like. And <laughs> sneak peeks. And, I don't know. I'm going to actually do a video for, for, the, for the patrons the, in the next week or two, just basically showing you some of the equipment and what we're doing behind the scenes. Easy-peasy stuff. Uh, but it's always about really appreciation for the work, and I, I really appreciate all of the support. So there you go. That's where you can find me. Kit and Sarah? Yeah. So uh, we do a podcast together called Tomo Chaco Podcast. Thank you. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at uh, Tomo Chaco Pod. And individually, you can find me on Twitter as Pink Roomba. And Sarah, what was your Twitter? It's Chest of Stars. Oh. Yes. And we, we've been doing the show for about three years. Started episode three. If you're, if you're just now listening and you want to get into it, please, I beg of you, started episode three. <laughs> That's when Sarah comes in and we really kind of start to try to figure out what the fuck we're doing. 
(laughs) (laughs) And we talk, we do it twice a month. We talk about any number of Yuri anime and manga right now. We had our uh, Patreon patrons vote on what Western cartoon series they wanted us to cover. And so we're in the middle of covering uh, She-Ra and the Princesses of Power. So that'll be the next episode that comes out. And then we're we're actually going on hiatus for a little while, but we'll still be doing some events and we'll still be doing stuff with our Patreon patrons. Uh, so if you're interested in any of that, follow us on Twitter at TomoChocoPod. And uh, our Patreon is uh, patreon.com slash TomoChocoPod. Awesome. Excellent. Definitely check out the Patreons of these wonderful people. And Erica's YouTube channel, and of course, Tomochoka Podcast. They're all really entertaining and informative. And again, thank you guys so much for coming on. This was, was wonderful. So we would love to come back. Yeah, yeah we'll, we'll definitely be leaving links to everything we've talked about in the show notes for anyone who wants to check out these guys' work. But, uh, Mom, I think it's about time for us to head into the ending of our show. Indeed. Let us go. Thanks again to Kit, Sarah, and Erica for coming on the show to discuss the Kazu-san series. We'd love to have them on and intend to invite them on the show again in the future. But until then, there's plenty of podcasts and videos featuring them for you to check out and listen to. So let's shout them out in What Else? Our community shoutouts! Definitely listen to Tomochoko for some lily chatter on Yuri of All Matter, particularly both their episodes on Kazu-san. Also, show some support their way on Patreon and help them get closer to reaching the goal of making Mercedes, their long-time fan, guest, and temporary editor, a full-time member of their team. As for Erica, definitely read Okaza for the latest Yuri news and reviews, and peruse her archive of all her Kazusan comments, including reviews of every volume, to a retrospective on the series' history, to an interview with Hiromi Takashima herself. Also become a patron of hers to get sneak peeks at all the projects she's working on, and to join in on the 2020 Okazu Patreon Holiday Party on December 30th, a veritable virtual air comicette where we'll discuss the Yuri Yuri, do a trivia contest, answer questions, and even win some prizes. And as you mentioned in the podcast, definitely check out Erica's YouTube channel and her video on what makes a story Yuri that me, Kit, and Sarah cameo in, and her newest videos from queer creators creating Yuri. For more Kaze content, particularly about the OVA, which we only sort of touched on in this podcast, 
definitely listen to Erica's guest appearances on Old Takono Radio and Anime World Order, where she discussed it with a host of those fine shows, going into what makes such a beautiful adaptation of the manga and a compelling film. And if you want another pod with both Erica and the Tomochoko team together, listen to Tomochoko's interview with Erica on the history of Yuri, and look forward to their upcoming retrospective of Bloom to You, which is not out quite yet, but should be out soon, and I'm really looking forward to listening to it as a big fan of Bloom to You and these fine folks. But moving on from podcasts, Erica also shouted out Miera Hiranashi on the show, and her comic, The Girl That Can Get a Girlfriend, and I also highly endorse it as a really funny autobiographical comic about Mir's experiences dating as a butch lesbian daughter butch lesbians, and all the difficulties and worries and goofiness done in tales. Her comic is available to read on Webtoon and Tapas, but definitely also follow her on Twitter for some sneak peeks and insights on her creative process. Like how in her recent comic, she combined two pictures of herself to create a reference for a kiss scene, which was a humorously helpful tip on how to create a kiss scene reference when you're single. On the subject of autobiocomics, though, I also want to shout out two LGBTQ artists drawing similarly funny and inspirational webcomics I've loved reading for a long time, those being the autobiocomics of Julia Kay and Lake Fama. Julia has this report revisionist at Disney TV Animation, and her comics explore her experiences dating and adjusting to life after transitioning, struggling with relationships and insecurities, and learning to be confident in who she is. Her real comics are being collected into a graphic novel called My Life in Transition, a super late bloomer collection that's set to come out on February 12, 2021, and I can't wait to pick it up. Meanwhile, Lake is a storyboard artist on Trollstopia, and their comics explore their experiences with dysphoria and body image being post their top surgery, and their comics share anecdotes of theirs that are often inspiring, comforting, and educational about how to feel comfortable in your own skin and make your body yours as a trans person. Reading about both Julia and Link's experiences has been a relatable comfort to me as someone who's also felt a lot of body dysmorphia and anxiety, and I highly recommend reading their comics if you relate or empathize with their experiences. On the subject of gender dysphoria, Hazuma Hashimoto's piece on anime feminist explores the new manga Boys Run the Riot and its intersection with fashion, drag, and visual decay, and how it explores coding as an expression of gender and a way for trans people like themselves and the protagonists of the manga to claim a sense of gender euphoria and present how they want to be seen and treated. He shared some really moving anecdotes about how visual decay fashion helped him express himself as a budding trans man and how well Boys in the Riot is allowing its trans man's protagonists to explore the world of fashion, feel comfortable, and like themselves as well. It's a wonderful piece that really has me excited to read the series when Kananja USA releases it next August. Finally, I can't think of a more perfect final community shoutout for this episode and LGBT Thanksgiving than something that ties together so many of the subjects and people we talked about on this podcast the documentary Queer Japan. It is finally available to rent and watch on various streaming platforms and digital theaters, and explores the LGBTQ subculture of Japan through interviews with several key creatives and influencers in the community, including the father of Game Monk himself, Kengoro Tagame. The documentary was produced and directed by Grant Colbeans and Anishia Massive, with translations done by none other than previous guest and translator of the Kazusan series subject to this podcast, Jocelyn Allen. It's a great doc displaying the diversity and depth of the queer community in Japan through the lens of so many people and their experiences. 
and is a great companion beast to our latest podcast if you're interested in learning more about queer culture in Japan outside the anime manga scene. Please watch it when you're done listening to this podcast. And with all that said, that brings us to the end of our community shoutouts at LGB Thanksgiving. I apologize for the delay on this last installment. I didn't mean for it to release halfway into December instead of the end of November, but like I said last time, sometimes it's good to let Thanksgiving bleed into Christmas and the other way around for once. But I really want to give my big hearty thanks to all our wonderful guests these past few episodes. Jocelyn Allen, Annie Shi, Chaps Cottrell, Kit, Sarah, and Erica. Thank you so, so much. And a big thank you I want to give to all our listeners for enjoying our conversations with them. We definitely plan to cover a lot more queer manga on the show next year and look forward to having another gale time with us on more queer occasions in the future. But now, I think we'll finally transition into the wrap-up of our show. Yeah, yeah. And I guess, um, I mean, you always go first, so you might as well. Sure, you can find me at Lumriyasha on Twitter, and it's Lumriyasha on a variety of places like Animation, Revelation, and Annie List. Wherever it is, Lumriyasha, that's you can find me. You can also read my reviews on allthatchcomber.com. We got a lot of books coming in, a lot of reviews going out, so look forward to more on there. And if you like the art I do for the show, the thumbnails, and all the other artistic things that I do in general, you can check out my Instagram for more artwork. At Sid Artworks is my Instagram handle, so look forward to all that stuff on there. All right, and as for me, I'm Colton. You can find me on Twitter, at SniperKing323. I also dabble in a lot of my own podcasts as well, which you could find links to over at uh, coltoncorner.wordpress.com. I have a page dedicated to whatever podcast I'm recording. So I, I usually don't do this, but I want to take the time to plug a very specific podcast, uh, that being the Poltergeist Report, where my friend Doc and I basically go through the entirety of the Yu Yu Hakusho anime. That show is available on the Ask Backwards Anime Podcasting Network Patreon at ssanetwork.com. Uh, we recently just completed all of Yu Yu Hakusho, so, you know, if you're interested in uh, hearing Doc and I in particular talk about Yu Yu Hakusho through the anime, literally you can listen to that entire show for just a dollar, again, at ssanetwork.com. I just wanted to take the time to plug that here because we just finished watching all the show. And uh, we even had uh, my good friend Lum here for the very last episode, uh, mm -hmm. I, and I'm sure you had a lot of fun doing that. I did. And we had a lot of fun not only discussing the end of the series, but also going into some fun bracket what-ifs towards the end. So I think there's a good 10-minute tangent on that. Yeah. Uh, so basically, by the time you're listening to this episode, uh, the final episode of that podcast should be out. Uh, we'll definitely also be covering uh, some OBAs and uh, movies in the future. But uh, uh, for now, you can listen to, again, Doctor and I talking about the entirety of Yu Yu Hakusho through the anime, again, for a dollar at ssanetwork.com. But anyway, as for Manga Mavericks in the podcast, you can listen to every episode of Manga Mavericks over at allcomic.com, where we post every episode first, unless you are a patron of ours at Patreon over at patreon.com slash manga mavericks uh over at the two dollar tier you'll have access to select podcast uh basically whenever we have them edited 
if we happen to have them edited early before they're kind of scheduled to go out on the main feed, uh, we'll put them up there. I will say that we do have at least one or two podcasts coming up uh, that are still on our Patreon that are coming to the main feed. But if you want to listen to them ahead of time before anyone else, again, they are available at the $2 tier for you to listen. Or if you want some new content, uh, you could sign up for a $5 tier and uh, listen to uh, our collection of bonus podcasts. We we upload a new exclusive bonus podcast for patrons ears only at the end of every month. Uh, right now, taking the place of those, we are recording, uh, speaking of Dr. Earlier, we are recording a side podcast called the Manga Mavericks Book Club, uh, where we talk about different manga that we might have brought up on the show before that we've covered you know, on the show proper, but you know, we can't, we can't stay away from them. You know, we, we got to talk about them more. And in this case, uh, we are talking about Saint Seiya, the original Saint Seiya manga from Masami Kuramata. It is my first time reading through it as well as doctors. Uh, we cover two volumes an episode and stumble our way through the wild series. That is Saint Seiya. <laughs> uh, it's been a lot of fun. I think we're about 16 volumes in at this point. So the, mm-hmm. we're we're halfway through Saint Seiya. And, uh, you know, if you want to listen to us talk about Saint Seiya, again, that's at the $5 tier. Uh, we're uploading episodes of that every month at the end of every month. Again, you can find all this and more over at patreon.com slash manga mavericks. You know, it, it's really the best way to support our show and for you to get, uh, again, extra content that you won't hear anywhere else. And then as for everything else, you could find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash all.comic or on twitter.com slash allcomic underscore. But if you want to follow us on Twitter, specifically Manga Mavericks, uh, you want to follow us at manga underscore Mavericks or on Tumblr at mangamavericks.tumblr.com for all the latest updates on the podcast. Uh, Subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash manga Mavericks, where we haven't talked about this yet, but we recently just reached 500 subscribers on YouTube. Yeah. you know, we have been trying to upload a little bit more on YouTube. Uh, so if you want to hear us uh, talk about all the jump starts that have come and gone, you can listen to our latest uploads there again at youtube.com slash manga mavericks. Email us anything at manga mavericks at gmail.com. Do you have any thoughts on Kase-san? Do you have any thoughts on uh, on any manga that maybe we should cover on the show? You know, what do you think about the podcast? You know, just just email us anything about manga or the podcast, and uh, we'll read it on the show. Again, that's at mangamavericks at gmail.com. We love getting emails, and we love reading them on the show. But the most important thing, guys, is that you subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts, or basically wherever podcasts are sold. We're on a bunch of different platforms, basically wherever you can listen to podcasts. Uh, especially on Apple Podcasts, it's very important that you rate and subscribe us because it helps the visibility of our show, helps us get out to more listeners. And uh, just in general, we love getting feedback on the podcast. And uh, yeah, so go do that if you have the time. And uh, that's really going to be about it for this episode. So yeah, we will see you guys on the next episode of the podcast. Uh, But for now, this has been episode 142 of the Manga Mavericks podcast on allcomic.com. And we will see you guys next time for episode 143. Bye, guys. Sayonara! Sayonara!